0: Welcome to the Life Over Coffee podcast, Conversations for Transformation. Hello, everyone. This is Rick Thomas with Life Over Coffee, where we have conversations for transformation. Our mission statement at Life Over Coffee is that we exist to bring hope and help to you and others by creating resources that spark conversations For Transformation. And I hope that what I'm sharing with you over the next few moments will spark those conversations for transformation. The title of this presentation is Human Motivation and Shaping Influences. The big idea is that everyone is different. Because of our unique and diverse shaping influences, everybody has a former manner of life that is unique to them, unlike anyone else. After God regenerates us, we bring our former manner of life into our Christian experience. And through the process of progressive sanctification, we progressively evolve into Christ-likeness, but not without a battle, not without a struggle, not without help from a few friends. Therefore, understanding what motivates an individual is essential for competent soul care, whether you're doing friend-to-friend get-togethers, doing life over coffee. Maybe it is discipleship or a more formalized setting like biblical counseling. This talk is an in-depth exploration of our shaping influences with practical applications that will help us understand those within our spheres of care. The outline is in four parts. Part number one is an introduction. After the brief introduction, I will talk about shaping influences. Now, this will not be an exhaustive list of all of our shaping influences, but it will be a good starter pack to give you many ideas as to how to think about an individual. Perhaps it will guide you as you create questions, as you explore them and what's going on with them and how you can serve them. Understanding a basic understanding of shaping influences is essential, and that's point number two. Point number three is illustrations, and so I want to make this practical for you. After we look at the shaping influences, I want to get into uh, how uh, some of this can be lived out in our experiences. And then finally, point number four, we will look at a few reflective questions to help us process this information. Let's start with the introduction human motivation and shaping influences so what we have here is what we learn from Ephesians chapter 4 verses 22 23 24 this is a basic three verse set that every Christian should know. This is where Paul talks about our former manner of life in verse number 22, and then in verse 23 he says we are to renew our minds, and then 24, we are to put on a new type of person that is Christ-like. But the point here is that Paul was talking to the Ephesians. These were Christians, meaning that you Christians are not entirely sanctified, you folks in Ephesus. You have a former manner of life that you have brought into your Christian experience, and there is a process for you to mature. Now, part of that process is for you to understand your former manner of life. The things that have happened to you, some of those things are big, and as you think about some of your more significant shaping influences, I know you have your stories. There have been some traumatic things, some dark experiences, some unfortunate things, some regrettable things that you carry with you, and you have carried with you for many years, possibly decades. As I like to say, some things that happen to us do leave a mark, and these are the big shaping influences that have come into our life. I will get into the specifics of this in just a moment. But then there's also these micro-shaping influences, the the mundane things that happen on a day-to-day basis. They're not as traumatic, maybe not even memorable. Sometimes they can be imperceptible, Acceptable, but yet the accumulative effect of them creates a shaping influence in our lives. Now, as you see with the directional arrows here from looking at the animation on the screen, These are the things that happen to us, but we also respond to life, and so it's going both ways. Either things are coming into our life, which, by the way, do not have to be negative. It's all of our experience, the good and the bad of it, the big and the small of those things, and of course we react to life as well. We react to God. We react to other people. We react to the situations in our lives, and so whether going or coming, we become the the cumulative effect of all the shaping influences in our lives, which this graphic illustrates in a very simple way. Now, I want to walk through one of the primary shaping influences in our life, and that is marriage. As you can see on the screen, this animation is titled "From Dating to Divorce." You could subtitle it "How We Got Here," and I'm using this in the introduction of human motivation, human motivation and shaping. Influences webinar here, because it is a common to all of our lived experiences, because most of us are married. Uh, Many of you have been married, and so you will relate very well to this. And then some of you are planning to get married, and so this could be a warning as well as an instructive animation for you to take heed uh, to. And so in the beginning is the dating experience that we all have with another human being as we move toward marriage. You could say it very simply as boy meets girl, and they live inside what I call the dating season, or euphemistically, maybe it's better to call an artificial season. And if I were to expand that label, I would say that the dating season is an artificial season where two people fake each other out until they get married strangers marry each other no matter how well you know that person or you think you know that person because in reality you only know them in part as a matter of fact even after you are married and spend years living with a person you do not know them in totality it is literally impossible to know a person because that would to know a person in an absolute sense because that would require omniscience But the problem with the dating season is that it is artificial. Uh, Many times the love that we have for one another, the affection that we have for one another, it can blind us into a dating delusion to where we do not understand the reality of the individual, their shaping influences, the things that have made them the way that they are. Every day is a reboot as you separate from one another and go to your respective homes and then come together the next day. You're not living in a 24-7, 360 relationship, and of course that is what marriage is. And so in a sense, the dating season is an artificial season. Strangers do marry each other, and then once they marry, they enter into life as a one-flesh union, an autonomous domestic empire where they are united, and there is no escape clause other than death. It is true that Jesus said because of the hardness of our hearts, people can get a divorce, and you can biblically get a divorce, but again, that happens because of the hardness of somebody's heart, usually both of the partners to varying degrees. And so they set out on their marriage, and as you see at the bottom of the screen, this is the first five years of marriage. Now, it's during this season to where they really need to do the work of learning how to get along, understanding each other. They need to develop a sin plan, meaning a a pathway of repentance, a plan when sin comes into their lives. What I have found in biblical counseling over the years is that people do not have a sin plan. They do not have a coherent... Logical plan mapped out when sin happens, this is what we're supposed to do. They have all sorts of plans, but not a sin plan. And that is unfortunate because if they do not deal with the issues that accrue in the early years of their marriage, what's going to happen is the next five to 20 years of their marriage. They will live in a distractive state. For example, the husband will go off to work in a traditional marriage, and the wife may go off to work or have children or have some kind of hybrid where she has children and is working, however that may play out. But the point here is that both of them become very busy, and what they had in the dating relationship is now a long way back in the rearview mirror, and they're living very busy lives at a frenetic pace, and so they're somewhat distracted, and you can even overlook a lot about an individual that you're married with when you're in this distractive state between 5 and twenty years. And then at the 20-plus year mark, maybe 25 or 30 would be more accurate as life begins to slow down, the nest begins to empty, eventually retirement will uh, be their new status, uh, the children will be gone, and they will have a lot of time together, and this is the problem. The husband comes home, for example, and now they're living together. When they have been living apart because of their work situation, whatever it has been for them, they have been living apart. It could be for 40 years, and now they are retired. They are just like they were in the dating relationship, but not exactly, and you'll find that there's a lot of accumulative trauma, a lot of things that have Uh, been swept under the rug. A lot of things have been ignored, and for some of them, they do, because of the hardness of their hearts, they take the escape route, and that is divorce. The problem with this graphic, as you're looking at it, is that it is not considering the most important thing on this graphic, and that is when Biff first rolled into the station and met his new girlfriend, Mabel. This is the problem on the left-hand side of the screen. It is their shaping influences. The things that made them who they are before they ever met each other. What they do is they take that baggage, their early shaping influences, and they set it aside. They enter into the dating window here, the artificial season where they fake each other out until they get married. And then they're off to the races as they enter into the frenetic life of marriage and they still have not dealt with Whatever the complication factors that each one of them have, and now you're commingling those two things in one container as one flesh, and there is combustion that's happening all along the way. They do not have a sin plan, but they can live in a distractive state because they are busy. And of course, they come to the end of their uh, marriage or at the 30, 35-year mark, they get a divorce. Everybody is flummoxed as to why they got a divorce. But as you look at this diagram, I think it's quite rational. It's logical. It makes perfect sense. And that's why it is crucial that we deal with our shaping influences. So with that as an introduction, I want to go to point number two, shaping influences. And I want to start I want to give you a, a starter pack, a list of some of our human motivation and shaping influences, and I'll draw it out, as you see here on the screen, uh, in a pyramid uh, leading from uh, the bottom uh, to the top. And as I discuss these things, the, the thing that I am talking about is our former manner of life, what Paul said in Ephesians 4.22, that we have a former manner of life. And so everything that I'm going to describe to you is broken in part, including the very first and foundational thing, which is the Imago Dei. We are made in the image of God, but because of total depravity, because of the brokenness that came into the world, even our Imago Dei uh, has problems The Imago Dei, made in the image of God, there are things about God that he has communicated to us. We are made in his image, and what I mean by communicated, I mean he has given those things to us. We call them communicable attributes, things that God has communicated or given to us we have received from him as image bearers. For example, God is love. We have the capacity to love. God can think We have the capacity to be logical and rational, to process and to be thoughtful, made in the image of God. This has been communicated to us. Unlike the animal kingdom, animals unlike us, we are different because we're made in the image of God. We can show mercy, because God is a God of mercy. We can also execute justice, because God is a God of justice. Now, you can go through a long list of the communicable attributes. Now, there are some attributes that are incommunicable, like omniscience. We don't know everything. I mean, once after you stop becoming a teenager, of course, you don't know everything. We're not omnipresent. We're not Omniscient, knowing everything, we're not omnipotent, we're not all-powerful, and so there are incommunicable attributes and communicable attributes, and as image bearers, we are the happy and fortunate recipients of what it means to be made in the image of God. That makes us different from everything else in His creative order. Uh, It makes us special. However, there is a problem, because in Genesis 1 and 2, there was nothing wrong with us, Adam and Eve. They were made, made in the image of God. The Imago day is the purest reflection of what it could mean to be made in the image of God. But then there was a problem. Genesis 3, starting at verse number 6, something happened to us. We call it fallenness, where we uh, made in the image of God without blemish, without sin, but then sin came into our world by the choice of Adam and Eve, choosing to believe a lie, to exchange the truth of God for a lie. And at that point, we became totally depraved. Total depravity means that we are broken through and through. Everything about us is broken psychologically, spiritually, physically. Our bodies are wasting away. We are spiritually broken. We are futile in our thinking. And it does not mean, by the way, that we have sinned all that we possibly could sin but it does mean that we have the capacity to sin in ways that are far beyond anything that we have done up to this moment. Total depravity is virtually an infinite amount of sinning that an individual can do. Now, we can look at uh, some of the characters throughout history, civilization, and we can see some of the extreme illustrations of this, of how far total depravity can go with some of the uh, more wicked individuals that we have read about in history books. Well, we could do that as well because they are not unlike us. We are not unlike them. We are all totally depraved, totally depraved, and even though we might not have sinned in such heinous ways as those, we have the capacity to do that, and so that is a key aspect to total depravity. And so everything post-Genesis three six is dark futile, fallen. We're still made in the image of God, but we are definitely broken. And so therefore, the Imago Dei is a huge shaping influence, albeit we are broken. And then the second one that you see on the screen here is unknown. Unknown shaping influences. There are mysterious things about us that make us unique. One of the terms that I like to use when talking about total depravity is that we are totally depraved but we are uniquely fallen and that is important because every single person is different no two people are alike as far as their fallenness is concerned when someone says that I was born this way you could maybe you can make a case for that Possibly. I was born a certain way. Fallen, broken. I have proclivities. I have desires. I have inclinations. I have passions that are different from the next person that that makes me uniquely different, for example, from my wife. Perhaps I can illustrate it this way using a parenting model, because any parent that has more than one child, they will understand this: that all of their children are totally depraved, as you and I are. But then, all of them are uniquely fallen, and of course, they know this because they see the differences in their children. As they could say, "Well, why is this child this way? The other one was not like this. This one was easy to parent. The other one's been a challenge to parent, etc." So, I will use our three children as an illustration. Our oldest child has my mind now as well, that could be a blessing and a curse, and it most certainly is. Uh, Sometimes I've labeled it as a labyrinthical mind. Think about a a maze. Lucia and I have talked about this for years. When one of the kids would ask me a question, the ball would drop in the top of my brain and it would roll around and around and around, and go to this corner and that corner, down that hallway, through that door, out the next door, down the stairs, and into the next room, and eventually I will have an answer. I have a lab- labyrinthical mind, as our oldest daughter does as well. Now that is a huge blessing because that gives you the gift of analysis. That gives you the <laughs> gift of processing things. Uh, it also drives people crazy because why can't you just answer the question? Or why do you give so much detail with the answer? I'm just looking for a, I'm just looking for a straightforward answer. Anyway, Lucia and I uh, in the early part of our parenting career. And sometimes the children would ask us a question, and if we're driving in the car, for example, I would squeeze her hand, which was her cue, to let me answer the question. It'll take me five minutes, but I'll answer the question where she could just uh, just give the answer immediately uh, because she's uniquely different from me. But in order to honor me and allow me to lead our children on occasion, we uh, the question had to go through my labyrinthical mind. Well, our, our oldest daughter has that kind of mind. It is a blessing, and it is a curse. And then our son has a more intuitive, logical mind. Uh, it's more like his uh, mother's, uh, as far as that is concerned. And uh, he also lives in such a way where it's kind of like water on a duck's back, to use that euphemistic expression, where things do not bother him as much, because he just not doesn't process things uh, the way the labyrinthical soul does. It doesn't make one better than the other. It makes them uniquely fallen and then our third child is quick-minded. Uh, her processor works rapidly, and so she can really spit out things and process things. It, it, her processor runs at a higher speed uh, than the rest of us. Now, there are many other differences, uh, pros and cons about our children, as with their parents, but this is just a A quick way of illustrating that we're all totally depraved and we are uniquely fallen. These are unknown things. I do not know. There are mysteries about us. And then there are genetic influences as well. Genetic influences are various traits that divine our, define our uniqueness. These are things that you actually can measure, and they are different from unknown. The mysterious things. By the way, the unknown influences, I mean, it could be things like cancer as well. Why can one person smoke cigars until they are 100 years old and never have cancer, and then a person die of cancer when they're 25, and they've never been around anything? Again, there are unknown things that make us who we are. But then genetic influences could be things like DNA or, or our IQ. I am six foot. I weigh 170 pounds. I have blue eyes, I think. I have a balding head, etc., uh, there's something about my DNA that makes me different from the next person and it's important because again we don't want to do cookie cutter discipleship we want to try to understand a person as much as we possibly can and then the next shaping influence is in utero which means in the woman that when the mother carries the child uh, the child uniquely grows inside of a mother's womb well that is a shaping influence and so we we've, we've heard harsh and horrendous stories about some mothers who have not been careful about how they have carried uh, their children by the things that they ingest uh, during the uh, pregnancy, and it has an effect on the child. Uh, There could be uh, the mother and the child that, for whatever fallen reasons there are, uh, that this child is affected. And I don't mean that in a disparaging way or to Judge, judge anyone, uh, we're just totally depraved. And when you put two humans together in pregnancy, what we're talking about here in utero, things can happen, which would also tie into genetic influences and unknown as well. But the in utero process in the woman during the pregnancy, that is a shaping influence. With some people, uh, it's more stark than with others. And then now we are moving into our lived experience. We have the Imago Day, we have unknown, we have genetic, we have in utero, and then family. The family is how our parents, our siblings, our relatives. Uh, some have been adopted, how all of these things affect us. Now, this is a simplistic statement that I have here. And of course, you want to take each one of these five points that I've covered thus far and really expand them out. In fact, you could put uh, any one of these line items here on a mind map and go in multiple directions because the family dynamic is more than parents, siblings, re- uh, relatives, or adoption, Is that if that is the case for you. But it is your entire lived experience with your family. And so there's all kinds of things that happen during those maybe 20 years that you're within uh, the familial dynamic of your home. And then outside of family, there are people. Relationships develop through life, especially early influencers. And I would want to highlight the first 10 years of a person's life. The first 10 years is the cement setting time. Uh, Many of you can reflect back on those first 10 years and how school teachers, for example, or other authority figures, maybe uh, within a church setting, for example, how they were a primary influence in your life during those early formative stages, stage rather, the interdependence stage, zero to ten where people influence you, and you can carry that influence either adverse or it can be encouraging. Uh, I can think of several people who encouraged me in my early uh, development, and it's still fresh in my mind. It's still sentimental as well. These were early influences, and of course uh, there are some negative relationships that you had as well, uh, and that is an influence that, that does leave a mark, as I was saying earlier, and it All uh, together, it makes our former manner of life. And then also the academy. The academy is our school experiences with all the associated positive and negatives. Not just taking tests, not just going through uh, the grades, and not just the homework assignments, but the entire experience, including the playground and recess and all the other things that are associated with our academic journey. And then there is culture. The country we live in the region of the country the society the generation my generation is different uh, from the generation that was born today the gen x for, or the gen z generation they were born uh, in the computer age uh, they've never known anything but technology. Well, I was born when they had roadmaps that you open up and you spread apart and you you look at the map and you couldn't take your fingers and pinch and open up the map to make it uh, or to zero in on, on a particular spot. And so, again, my generation was much different. We had three channels on our television. We had one local paper. Today you have a zillion channels, and you have information overload with what's happening on socials. And so, again, generation does matter because one of the things that you don't want to do is to map your generational experience over a person who is older or younger than you. You will not be able to connect with them if you don't understand their shaping influences. I also have here on this live item the zeitgeist, meaning the spirit of the age. As somewhat tied to generation, uh, the spirit of this age is far different than the spirit of the age in which i was a child and then also politics that is obvious the civil authorities our affiliations and uh, the overton window as examples and again you can explain or you can expand on this rather the overton window is the greed the agreed upon public dis- discourse uh, it is a window a frame in which we all step inside of and these are the things that it's okay to talk about, and there are things that are outside the Overton window that are taboo that we don't talk about in public discourse. Now, regrettably, for many of us who are conservative, The Overton window continues to shift in a progressive, left-leaning way. Uh, For example, there were things that we would just never talk about, never say publicly. Uh, There were words that you would never say on television. For example, when I was a child, but now they say those things as common speak, and even a five-year-old would find that language within the Overton window, the agreed-upon public discourse. I reluctantly agree upon some of these things. I radically do not agree with some of these things, but nevertheless, they are accepted, and they're in the fluid Overton window. And of course, this I'm putting within the political category, point number nine. And then there is morality, point number 10. We are moral beings, which might include our religious practices as well. We choose. We have a conscience. Everybody has a conscience. We know the difference between right and wrong, black and white, what's acceptable, what's not acceptable. We learned this in uh, Romans chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, talking about the Gentiles that have a conscience that accuse or excuse them. Even Satan himself believes in God. Everybody is a moral being. And so our morality, whatever it may be, that is a shaping influence. And then finally, our will, our free will. And what I mean, we are the accumulative effect of our influencers and also our decisions. We're not victims. Uh, We can be a victim in a moment, but we should not live in that condition forever. We can make decisions. We have free will. And so, as I showed in an earlier graphic, we do respond to the big and small things that happen to us. Now, what you see here on the screen are 11 shaping influences. This is not an exhaustive list. And as I suggested earlier, you can take any one of these and develop a mind map and go in multiple directions as you continue to create categories and subcategories under each one of these primary categories that you see on the list, and that creates our former manner of life, or as I said, the old person. Now, what I would want to encourage anyone not to do is to go into some kind of blue funk now, where they feel like they can never get out of the trap of their former manner of life, as a Christian, we have a gospel. Uh, This is why Christ came into the world, uh, to change us totally depraved, uniquely fallen individuals so that we can enter into a salvation experience with Jesus Christ. We can be born again or regenerated born a second time, generated a second time, and we can enter into a process of progressive sanctification where we experience incremental transformation into a Christ-like person, which is verse 24 in Ephesians 4 that we can put on a new person. If you happen to be watching this video and you are not a Christian or you're listening to the podcast version of it, and you don't know what it means to be a Christian, I would encourage you to write us at lifeovercoffee.com, and we would be more than glad to be able to walk you through what it means to be born a second time, so you uh, do not have to be bound to your former manner of life. The shaping influences the things that have made you into who you are. God overwhelms our natural state by bringing us into a relationship with Christ through regeneration and sanctification. Now, point number three of this webinar, I want to get into several illustrations just so that we can visually see what our shaping influences, how they can play out uh, in our lives. Now, I've already showed you one, as you see on the screen here, from dating to divorce and how we got there. Well, as you think about those 11 shaping influences, that former manner of life, and again, I would encourage you to add to that list because that is not exhaustive, but you can see how all of those things could impact Biff in a unique way that is completely unlike Mabel. Lucia and I, I don't know if we could be much different than we are. We are radically different uh, individuals. We are just not alike. Now, that is a good thing uh, in a Christocentric worldview, because what she brings to the table, I do not possess, and so that makes me a better person. And what I bring to the table, she doesn't possess either, which makes her a better person, and so it really fills out the picture, Of what a one-flesh union can be like. Of course, there are negative things that we bring to the table as well, and that's where we need a sin plan. We need a logical, rational plan that when those negative things come into our lives, we can work through them, mature together, so we don't get at the end of the road where we can't stand each other. But we've actually wrestled through our negative differences, And we're now matured in Christ. But as you can see, Bill and Mabel, as they roll into the station, they're very much unlike in every possible way, including the male-female binary. And so they enter into this delusional window of the artificial season of dating, and they really need to be on their P's and Q's as they leave the station and enter into marriage. They need to do that with their eyes wide open and... They must be ready to activate their sin plan, because things are going to be different once they leave this artificial season. Now, another way to think about our shaping influence, I'll, I will quote Forrest Gump here from the 1994 movie. Forrest said, and in fact, Forrest had, I think his, he had an 85 IQ. This is a genetic influences, 84, 85, something like that. Forrest said, I am not a smart man. But I know what love is. And so what you see here is a combination of, of some things that I've mentioned already. Uh, Forrest has a shaping influence. He he has a, a genetic influence, has a, a low IQ. Academically, he's not smart. But he has the communicable attribute of love. God has given him the capacity to love. And so he can love, even though he's not an intelligent man. And all of that is embedded here in this uh uh, cliche uh, that has been used often from the movie. But there's something else that I want you to see here about Forrest Gump, and this is what I call the small soul individual. In 1 Thessalonians 5.14, Paul talked about the faint-hearted person. In the King James Bible, it says the feeble-minded person, and that literally means a small soul. Now, this is hugely important when you're helping people. This is not a judgmental or a, condemnate, a condemning statement that you're making towards someone, but it is discernment. It is wisdom. It is trying to understand the person shaping influences. Who is this person? And the implication here is that people can have different soul sizes, And of course, that makes logical sense when you think about it through a biblical grid, that we are a dichotomy, both body and soul, Soul, organic, non-organic, physical, spiritual, several ways of saying the same thing. And as our physical bodies are different, as I'm six foot, I look a certain way, uh, I have limitations, and then I can excel uh, more than others in other areas physically uh, because I have a certain capacity. If you put me on a track with a world-class 100-dash sprinter, well, there's no way. I can't compete. Uh, He has a greater capacity than I do, physically speaking, put me on a a basketball court, no matter how much training I have. uh, Those who have that gift, have the genetics, have the ability to do that, have a greater capacity. And so it's not a judgmental thing at all. It's just a recognition of what our limitations, what our strengths, what our weaknesses are, never looking down on another individual, but using practical discernment to know that people are different. And of course, that makes sense also, uh, spiritually speaking, our non-organic selves. As I talked earlier about our children, you have the labyrinthical mind, like mine, you have the intuitive mind, you have the quick mind, the quick-minded person as our youngest daughter. And then you have Forrest here who says, I'm not a smart man, but I know what love is. Well, he has a small soul. Uh, a, a small spirit, you could say, and then as you think about someone like maybe Elon Musk, well, there's no question that he has a higher capacity internally than Forrest Gump. has a much higher IQ, whatever that is, a Mensa level IQ of one north of 140. Uh, these people would be able to process more. This is why the military has a certain base of what your IQ must be, because there are certain capacities that you must be able to meet in order to be in our military. And so again, not a judgmental call on anyone, but a recognition, because again, you can exasperate somebody by prodding them along to be something, do something, that they really cannot do. Now, I'll talk about in a few moments how you distinguish between character-related issues and capacity issues, because there is discernment there. But there are differences between a small-souled person and, let's say, Elon. And then you take a person like Paul, the great apostle. Uh, I'm going to put him as a larger soul individual, even larger than uh, Elon Musk. Paul could speak multiple languages. He could be all things to all people. He was a devout Jewish man who was deeply entrenched in Jewish history and Jewish religion, and then he had an experience with God. God called him uniquely, and of course he had the capacity to step into the opportunity that God was leading him into. And then obviously Jesus Christ would be a large soul individual as well. Now I'm speaking of The hypostatic union, specifically his humanity. Jesus was 100% man on earth, and that is what I'm talking about here. Uh, Jesus did not use his divinity on earth, as some people tend to think. No, he was operating as a man 100%. He was not 98% man and 2% God. He was 100% God. It would annihilate the gospel if he was anything else. And so he became a man, and as a man... Uh, He had a large soul, as we uh, would surmise, and so this gives you a visual understanding of how people are different internally as far as their soul capacity. Now in another webinar I talked about I gave a soul education, Uh, and I will not go over that here, but you can see on the screen some of the soul parts. And I think that's important. When I talk about soul, the word soul is a basket word, like the word body. And so we say body and soul. That's our dichotomy. The body has many parts within that basket. The label body is on the outside of the basket, and there are many parts inside. Well, the internal basket is labeled soul, and there's many parts inside a person's soul. This is where you would want to develop a mind map for an individual as you think about their unique soul. What you see on the screen here are some of their soul parts. There is spirit, mind, conscience, will, desires, emotions, motives, cravings, thoughts, intentions, strengths, heart, and you can add to this list but again, I just want to expand the lens a little bit so that we think about soul, that we can actually look inside of the basket and recognize that as we deal with each person uniquely and start pulling out their soul parts, you you will see that, wow, they're really different in some very specific ways. For example, a person could have a sensitive conscience, maybe because of their former manner of life. They were reared in a, a, a legalistic religious environment, and therefore they think that there are more there are more sins out there than they actually are. Like in First Corinthians eight, where the Jewish convert, the Jew person, became a Christian, and they believed that eating meat sacrificed the idols was a sin. Well it's not. And Paul was very clear that it's not a sin, but because of their former associations, Paul says in First Corinthians chapter eight, you could say their former manner of life, their conscience, is malleable as is yours and mine. And because of the malleable conscience, it can be shaped. We learn in 1 Timothy 4.2 that the conscience can be seared with hot iron. And so you will be dealing with an individual with a malleable conscience, and you want to get inside and see uh, the kind of conscience they have. And so that is some of that uh, intuitive a more precise soul work that you would do to try to understand their motivation and shaping influences. And then there's another illustration I want to walk through, a, a slogan that has become popularized in the mid-aughts by the Me Too movement. And for those of you who can remember back then, they had a saying that said, You must believe all women. And it, the sloganeering is part of the devil the devil's angel of light strategy which is sloganeering. They come up with these cute phrases, and there's always just enough embedded truth to lure any of us away from God's truth. And that is the problem. We can be manipulated by these snappy slogans because, of course, I want to believe a woman, but the key word in there is all women. Believe all women. And it narrows the focus down to a pinpoint that doesn't give you a comprehensive understanding of what is really going on. And if you're going to do insightful discipleship or biblical counseling, you want to guard against such sloganeering, and you want to expand the lens. But the problem is there's always just enough embedded truth to lure any of us. Rationality requires widening the lens to consider all the possibilities. And so as you think about what is going on in an individual's life, and I will use the Me Too movement slogan, Believe All Women. And so let's say that a woman comes to you in counseling, or a man. It really doesn't matter for the sake of the illustration. And they want you to believe me. Now, we know that with that slogan, that that was a manipulative gaslighting slogan— that did not allow you to look at any other data. But if you're gonna do good, excellent, competent, soul care, then you do want to believe them. In fact, you could say something like this. I believe you so much that I want to take the time to investigate and process what is happening. As you see on the screen with this one dot on the canvas, this is what I call a foolish belief model. And so I want to walk through what a wise belief model looks like. And it's important for you to understand that I'm not disbelieving the individual at all. When a person says that, you know, I have been victimized or this person did this to me, you do not listen to them with a cynical eye. Uh, You do not listen to them with, with suspiciousness in your heart. No, you believe them. I believe you but this is where you want to expand the lens. You'll say, I believe you so much that I'm going to take the time to investigate and process what has happened. By the way, you would be a fool to just believe them without any investigation. The person is right in their own eyes until another person comes along. And so one of the things that you want to do is, as we expand the lens, you want to look at the Bible. I believe you, and I want to see what the Bible says about this, because I want the Bible to guide me through this process. And then also you want to look at the context. Uh, what is the context of the thing that has happened to you? And then you want to begin to talk to other people. What have other people said uh, about this? Uh, what is their perspective? If you don't talk to, if you don't talk to other people, And you only listen to a singular person, a singular voice. And again, without being cynical or suspicious, but being wise and discerning. And if you don't do that, then you're a fool. If you don't investigate the Bible, if you don't pursue the context and see uh, all the things that have uh, created this particular situation or issue that you're looking at, if you don't talk to other people, and then finally... Uh, We want to consider omniscience, and as we consider omniscience, we are humbled, and we recognize, oh, uh, what I know and what God knows about this, uh, they're not even in the same universe. I know a pinpoint on the screen. What God knows, well, it goes way beyond the parameters of the screen. And so the wise belief model does not unbelieve the person at all. Cannot say that enough times. But it is a wise belief model that does not believe the person at exclusively. And therefore, with a wise belief model, you believe them and you investigate what does God's Word say? What's the context? What do other people say? What is God's mind on this? What is God doing? This also would factor in a theology of suffering. How does suffering interweave itself into this thing that is happening to this person? For example, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul's thorn in the flesh, the suffering that he went through was never going to be resolved in his earthly life. And so if, if your intent is to believe the person and to extricate them from their thorn in the flesh, now maybe that is the wise and the prudent thing to do, but again, we want to make sure we're grappling with God's mind so that we have a full perspective on what is going on, because there will be few, a few, isolated, unique situations to where suffering is the vehicle for God to expedite the narrative that he is writing in an individual's life. So with a wise belief model, the first thing that happens to me, and it should happen to the other person as well, the person that you're helping, is humility. And out of that humility there has to be a growing courage, because it could be that there are some things that you need to say to this person, especially if they gaslight you. If they resist, they don't want you to investigate. Or they feel like, you don't believe me because you're asking other people. They're immature to put the best spin on it. Or maybe they are manipulative and deceptive, and they don't want you to ask anyone else. But whether it's immaturity or delusional deception, you do need courage that will flow out of that humility And it will give you the ability to discern. God gives grace to the humble, and the Spirit will empower you to see things that you would not ordinarily see because you need that spiritual discernment. And then you'll begin to process what is going on from a more comprehensive way at a granular level as well you'll slow the process down so that you can think because as time goes by things will begin to change stories will change new data will come in and you need that time and so you don't want to be impulsive in your counseling unless there is some reason that you really have to move the ball down the field quickly but rarely there is and you want to take appropriate time to be able to process what is really going on and then there will be changes changes in the story changes in the first person who came You will begin to change uh, your own perspective about how you think about it, and through this process that you see, that will most definitely happen. And then, of course, we want to hold all of our conclusions loosely because we're not omniscient. That is an incommunicable attribute. And so we can only understand things within certain limitations, finite human limitations. And so there will be an element of mystery with all of these matters. And so we want to walk in humility, and we must become comfortable with mystery. And we learn to trust as we move through this process. And so again, as you begin to investigate and try to understand shaping influences, how we got to where we are... And in this particular illustration, you're trying to help a person to work through whatever's going on in their lives. This is a good visual that will help you to slow the process down and to think more comprehensively about what is going on so that you can truly help them in a biblical fashion rather than impulsively giving a response without such thorough investigation. Now, another illustration in this webinar, Human Motivation and Shaping Influences, when you're helping a person, you want to determine what your starting place is with that individual. And what I mean by that, again, everybody's totally depraved and uniquely fallen. And so when you meet a person, you have to have a starting place, but you do not know where that starting place is to help them. And so you begin asking questions, and through a dialogue with them, At some point, you will find their starting point to where you can begin helping an individual. You don't want to assume that they are something that they aren't. You do not want to uncharitably judge a person thinking they're farther back on the progressive sanctification spectrum here, that they're farther back than they really are. And so you really want to dial in, but you do that through skilled question, asking, unpacking who they are so that you can identify their starting point. Now the goal with all people, as you see here on the screen, is Christ. Christ is the goal, and so that is where we want to lead everyone uh, to Christ as is illustrated here with the cross. Now when I meet someone, I I generally assume I have a I enter into a conversation with the person. I call them good faith conversations, meaning I I believe you. And if I'm talking to a Christian, I just assume that they love God, they're they're walking with God, they're close to Christ, they're in the progressive sanctification process, they're saved. I think good things about every person that I meet. I do not enter into relationships cynically, and I trust you do not either. I trust people, I believe all things. When I meet them, you just don't want to live that suspicious life. That is a form of insanity that you really don't want to adopt. Uh, You want to trust people. And then, once you meet them, you begin to ask them questions. Now, inevitably, what you're gonna find out when you meet a person is they're, they're gonna start moving. And rarely will they move closer to the cross. Typically, they will move farther from the cross. As you talk to them, it's like, oh, you think that? Ah, that happened to you. Mm, you read that book. Ah, okay. And you'll find that typically there will be a gap that will grow between where you thought they were, to where they really are. By the way, that's also a picture of marriage, too. When you're dating someone, you have a perception of who they are based on limited data. Remember, strangers marry strangers. And then as you get to know them, they oh, they're further from Christ than what I thought they were. Now, as you talk to some people, what you will find is that they will They will have it in reverse so far that eventually they will go all the way back, and you realize, oh, this person is not a Christian at all. And so now we're not talking about progressive sanctification, but we're talking about evangelism. And so again, you want to define your starting points. You do this with wisdom and discernment, not with cynicism or suspicion. We want to be harmless as doves, but wise as serpents. And so, again, we terribly judge all people, we believe all things, and then we enter into a good faith conversation with them, and don't be surprised uh, when the gap grows between them and the cross. There are some things that we can change. And we also have a predetermined ceiling. I talked about this earlier, uh, the difference between character-related issues and capacity issues. And I wanna illustrate that with this animation as you see on the screen. And so I have character at the bottom. Character are things that we can change. Capacity at the top, this is our God-given ceiling. And so everybody has a ceiling. You can only be so smart, you can only jump so high, you can only know so much and we want to fulfill our capacity, whatever it is. Forrest Gump, though he has a small soul, he has a capacity, and you want him functioning to the fullest of his capacity of whatever it is. We, I talk about this in our Mastermind program. That's why we don't give A's and B's and C's and D's, because that's a And awkward, it's not a helpful way of grading students because every student is different. and A for one student, you know, is not the same for another student. And so it's not a smart way of grading people because other people, you know, our children, for example, that they can excel in an academic environment, but that doesn't make one child better than the other child, the child who doesn't excel in an academic environment because his capacity is different. And so we supervise our students in our mastermind program uniquely. Everybody has their own capacity. And so you can look at it like 15 jars lined up in a row, and every one of them has a different uh, ounce capacity. And so you can have a one ounce, two ounce, three ounce, 16 ounce, 24 ounce, 48 ounce. And the person who has a one ounce, a small soul person, could be 100%. They're filling up their capacity, which makes them better than the 48-ounce person who is operating at about 15 ounces. And so everybody has a God-given ceiling. And by the way, uh, once you uh, uh, fill up your capacity, you can't repent anymore. You can't jump any higher. But then there are things that are character-related. And the character-related things are things that they can change, and so when you're working with a person, uh, you want to discern between character and capacity. Now, I want to draw that out on the screen by using uh, antithetical antithetical illustrations between capacity and character. And so let's say that someone comes to you, and it's a marriage situation, and the wife, Mabel, says, uh, Biff doesn't communicate. Okay? Well, is that a capacity issue? Meaning Biff can't talk. He doesn't have a tongue, for example. Biff can't talk. Well, then, Mabel, you have a problem. That's a capacity issue. Or is it really a capacity issue, or is it character? You mean he can talk, he just doesn't talk to you. Ah, he needs to repent. There is a difference. And so, is he communicative? Can he talk? Or is he silent? If he's silent and he can talk, then he can repent. Is he loving? Here's another antithetical illustration, as you see on the screen, the antithesis between loving and angry. Uh, lo- is that a capacity issue? He can only love in certain ways, he can only love a certain amount, or is this a character issue? He doesn't love, and he can change, and he can love in a different way. Uh, we want to be careful that we don't say, well, you know, Biff will be Biff, now, this is how Biff is. He's always been that way. Sure, sure, Surely he has. But that's why we have a gospel. And so we want to make sure that we don't label somebody as a capacity issue, and he can't be any other way. Can he communicate? Can he love? Uh, can he be an encourager? The antithesis here is between being an encourager and being a gossip. These are just illustrations. You can switch out any of these words. Uh, brave versus fearful this person is fearful. This is how God made them. I am an introvert. I have stage fright. I can't speak. Really? You can't speak in public? Seriously? Uh, maybe you just don't have a God-centered courage, a God-centered bravery. I think sometimes we can um, relegate a person to a certain condition or an identity thinking it's a capacity issue when in reality it's a character issue, and they can change. The other end of that is that we can exasperate someone, prodding them along to do things that they can't do, and so discernment is critical. And then we have God-reliance and self-reliance, and then finally a person who is living in Christ identity versus being self-righteous. And so these are antithetical statements that show we want to discern the person's capacity is, are there areas where they can repent? Because if it's character-related, all of these things at the bottom of the screen are character-related. Silence, angry, gossip, fearful, self-reliant, self-righteous. That's not a capacity issue. That's a character issue. They need to repent. They need to grow in being communicative, loving, encourager, brave, God-reliant, and Christ-identity. There's more room to grow on the capacity side if they will repent. And then somebody will say, well, you just haven't walked a mile in my shoes. This is the person that will disqualify you and say that you're not able to help me because you haven't lived my experience. And what they do not understand is that it is a unique life. I will not take that away from you. You have a unique life. I have not lived in your experience. By the way, neither has Jesus but we have common demand struggles. That's why Jesus can be a sympathizing Savior, because he was tempted in all points, as we are. And so you can have a unique life, I give you that, but you have to give me, we have common demand struggles. And so I can understand you, not your unique life above the ground, the life, your lived experience, the life that you have lived. But see, we counsel at the level of the heart. That's where discipleship happens. And so as I look into your life underneath the surface, what you're going to find are some common-demand struggles. And you see on the screen here, six of them. These are things that are struggles to varying degrees with all of us. I will not go through them because I covered this in our self-reliant webinar, which I would encourage you to uh, to watch uh, because it is a detailed uh, journey through these six idols that you see here on the list, Co- uh, control, comfort, fear, shame, guilt, unbelief. All of us struggle With these things to varying degrees, depending on our maturity, depending on our application of Christ in our life, depending on where we are in our journey with God. But these are common to man struggles. Nobody uh, is outside of these struggles here. And then here's another list, another six, self-reliance, self- righteousness, self-centeredness, sexual issues, fear of man, anger. So you see 12 things on the list. Now, Again, I haven't walked in your shoes because your shoe size is actually bigger than mine or smaller than mine. And so I can't walk in your shoes. You have a unique life. But where we do discipleship is underneath the surface. And when we do that, there are common demand struggles. Now again, if you want to get a full a fuller detailed analysis of this particular slide that you're looking at, I would encourage you to watch the webinar about overcoming unbelief and dismantling self-reliance. As I wrap up here, I want to give you some reflective questions to think about. This is part number four or thoughts rather. They're not questions. Number one, the gospel is greater than all of our shaping influences. I said that earlier. We're not victims. We're victims in the moment. We're victims for a season. But that is not an identity that you want to carry because we have a gospel. If you're buried in your former manner of life or the things that have happened to you, I would encourage you to get help. Number two, we are not entirely sanctified. We all have, we will always have limitations. So don't expect too much. And so again, we have to discern between capacity and character issues, but do not expect perfection Out of anyone and so we want to operate with wisdom as we help people to mature into how God made them to the fullest of whatever their jar size might be number three people's temptations will be different based on variable shaping influences as we looked at 11 of those at the beginning of this webinar number four don't be overly concerned about these things to the point of intimidation meaning as you're working with someone don't be intimidated about it. You can help them. And when they say you haven't walked a mile in my shoes, agree with them, and then begin to walk them through how you can help them anyway. Number five, do not do cookie-cutter discipleship. One size does not fit all, as I think you have properly deduced at this point. And then finally, number six, disciple them to fulfill their God-given capacities, whatever they may be. The big idea, everyone is different because of our unique and diverse shaping influences. Understanding what motivates an individual is essential for competent soul care. This talk is an in-depth exploration of our shaping influences with practical applications that will help us understand those within our spheres of care. Before you leave, I would ask you, if you could, do a few things for us. Pray for our ministry, obviously, that God would continue to help us to reach as many people as possible with the practical message of Christ. Follow us on socials, socials, wherever we may be. Share our content from socials or from our website, lifeovercoffee.com. And then, uh, for those of you who are able to support us, don't fall prey to the bystander effect. Thinking that somebody else is going to take care of this, they won't. And so if God puts it on your heart to support us in whatever way you can, would you? These resources are presented to you freely and it's presented to everyone else. Most of our resources at Life Over Coffee are free, but in reality, in reality, they're not. Uh, it costs a lot of money to do what we do. And if you're able, Don't fall prey to the bystander effect, thinking somebody else will do it. Will you support us if you are able? Some of you may want to consider our Mastermind program. You can find information about our all-online training program at LifeOverCoffee.com. The title of this webinar is Human Motivation and Shaping Influences. Thank you so much for watching. I am Rick Thomas. I'm very glad that you hung to the end. I trust that this will create conversations. For transformation, please make your way over to lifeovercoffee.com, and we have a lot more resources waiting for you. Thanks for joining us. Learn more and get access to other resources at lifeovercoffee.com.